We're going to be looking once again back at uh, Colossians in the third chapter and uh, just one verse in the fourth chapter. In the third chapter, Paul is speaking to bondservants. He says, bondservants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. And then in chapter four, verse one, he says, masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, in our previous message, we looked at these passages, but I put them more in a modern context of um, addressing the employee-employer relationship. But I said that I wanted to go back and address the issue of slavery. And I want to do that because, as I also mentioned, the question that is being floated about in the culture today is not only is Christianity true, but the question is now becoming, is Christianity good? Is God good? Is the Bible's teaching good? Is the gospel good? Is the Christian faith good for people? Is it good for the world? Now, as I pointed out, many are answering those questions with a resounding no, saying that the teachings of the Bible are bigoted, oppressive, hateful, racist, and generally detrimental to society. And so one of the things that is often pointed out by these critics of the Bible is the Bible's teaching on slavery. And so they point to the Bible's teaching on slavery saying, look, it, here's, here's living proof that the Bible is uh, un, unhelpful to say the least, detrimental really, because they say the Bible supports slavery. Uh, atheist writer Sam Harris has voiced that in these words. He said, in assessing the moral wisdom of the Bible, it is useful to consider the moral questions that have been solved to everyone's satisfaction. Consider the question of slavery. The entire civilized world now agrees that slavery is an abomination, says Harris. What more instruction do we get from the God of Abraham on the subject? Consult the Bible and you will discover that the creator of the universe clearly expects us to keep slaves. So that's Sam Harris's conclusion. And he is just uh, one of many voices that are making such claims. And so this is the question. Is that true? Does the God of the Bible endorse, support, promote, and expect slavery? And here's another question that's related. Was American slavery supported by scripture as some Christian leaders taught then and still insist on today? So these are the things that we're going to be looking at. Now, let me just say this. The first mistake that people like Harris make in interpreting slavery in the Bible is that they're doing it through the lens of slavery in the European-American experience. They're, they're looking back on the scripture, but they're looking through that lens, and they're thinking that uh, what, what happened in the American and European experience is identical to what was happening in the Bible, and it simply is 
not the same. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at slavery in the Old Testament. We're going to look at slavery in the New Testament. We're going to look at slavery in the American experience. And finally, we're going to look at what Jesus and the apostles did to set in motion changes that would ultimately abolish slavery. So let's start with the Old Testament. Now, most people, when they begin with the Old Testament, they look at the laws of Moses. And we will come to the laws of Moses in just a moment. But I want to go further back. I want to go back to Abraham. But even before we do that, let me just say this. The, the word, uh, the Hebrew word that is translated in more recent versions as slave uh, is also translated as servant. And so the context depends on whether we are talking about uh, a servant or, or a slave. Now, before 1900, all of these, uh, this word was always translated as servant. And then again, the context would sometimes indicate like the Egyptians in, uh, or the Israelites in Egypt, it would, the connotation would be more of slavery. But, but the word simply means this. The word simply means to work for. That's the meaning of the Hebrew word. And then again, the context sort of gives you an idea of, of what that might have looked like. Now, let, let's talk about Abraham for a moment. So Abraham had servants. He had household servants. And one of his servants is, is uh, named. His name is Eliezer. And here's an interesting thing about uh, Abraham and Eleazar, Abraham said of Eleazar, he was Eleazar of Damascus, he said that he is my heir. He is my heir. Uh, in other words, upon Abraham's death, all of his belongings will pass to Eleazar. So nothing like this um, in the slave-master relationship, uh, we, we, we wouldn't commonly think of anything like this in the slave-master relationship, right? That the, the slave is actually the heir. Well, again, here Eliezer is better understood as a, as a servant, but like I said, the word is the same. Um, but, but nevertheless, uh, we see that Eliezer wasn't a person who lived under some heavy, oppressive kind of a thing from Abraham. He was like a son to Abraham. And so we need to understand again that when the Bible is speaking of servanthood or when it's speaking uh, at times of slavery, it's not speaking about the same thing that we would necessarily think of when we hear the term. Now, slavery in uh, the time of Moses. So the law of Moses, of course, is not Moses's law. It's God's law. And in God's law, he gave specific instruction regarding slaves, regarding servants. Now, Many people who were slaves at the time were what you call, they were indentured. or And this would be indentured servant is a better way to understand it. And an indentured servant was a person who was bound by contract to serve another person. They were bound by contract to serve another person. In ancient Israel, people would sell themselves or other family members in order to pay off a debt 
or in order to have their cost of living covered during times of financial hardship. So this was part of the culture. This is part of the way that it worked. This was a temporary arrangement and it was something where there was an agreement. Now there was a lifelong servitude that one could enter into, but one had to agree to enter into lifelong servitude. It wasn't simply imposed upon you. So indentured servants, many uh, of the slaves were indentured. Sometimes uh, slaves came into being as a result of warfare. They were acquired through um, the, the battles that took place and the victories that were won and the spoil that was taken. And so um, they would be brought in uh, as workers for the Israelites. Now, remember that even under this kind of a situation, there were very strict rules that the masters had to abide by. You see, slaves in Israel, unlike anywhere else at the time, had rights. They had specific rights that are spelled out in the law of Moses. They had rights and they were not to be abused. For example, we are told in uh, the scripture that if a man knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let them go free for the sake of the tooth. So you become violent, you become abusive, you knock out the tooth of your servant and you're then obligated to let them go free. So you can see that in the system, there was um, protection for the slaves. They had rights. Rebecca McLaughlin in her great book, Confronting Christianity, she has a chapter on this uh, question of slavery. And she says this regarding the Old Testament. She says, when God gave his people the law, it included repeated reminders that they were once slaves. And this was to inform them how they would treat slaves. Not only slaves, but immigrants, widows, and orphans. The Old Testament bans catching uh slave catching, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment, which is essentially kidnapping, uh, provides protection for slaves and invites us to see the world through the enslaved eyes of a woman named Hagar and also of a man named Joseph, who was a slave in Egypt, but also through uh, the eyes of the whole people of Israel uh, during their time uh, in Egypt. So that's kind of a generalization of the Old Testament teaching on slavery. But the Old Testament did not ban slavery. So here's the question, why not? Why didn't the Old Testament ban slavery? Well, we have to understand what the, and I say the Old Testament, I'm speaking specifically of the law. What was the law's purpose? What was its objective? Um, the law was a temporary measure. It was never intended to bring about the perfect world. It was a temporary measure. It was used to regulate life rather than to bring about the perfect situation. Jesus made it clear that God permitted certain things under the law, like divorce, for example, 
uh, which were less than his ideal, but Jesus told us that he did it because of the hardness of their hearts. You see, only when the heart changes can the ideal be realized. So it was never God's intention to create a perfect society um, during that, that period of the law. And again, we might think, well, why not? But that's something that we have to leave up to God. He knows what he's doing. We believe that. But let's move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So here's what many would say today, many who would echo the things that we read by Sam Harris. Um, They would say, well, if the gospel is good, like you say, then the apostles and the early Christians, they would have abolished slavery. And since they didn't, it means that Christianity is not good. But you see, this is what you, uh, you would refer to people like this as armchair sociologists, philosophers, or theologians. Um, and, and armchair, this is a word that came from the world of anthropology. Uh, the, the first anthropologists were called armchair anthropologists because they understood a society, they judged a society from a distance. They judged it through what they could read. They judged it through, you know, maybe conversations and things, but they didn't have firsthand experience. And the one who sees and judges things from a distance, uh, but has no reality of what's going on on the ground, that's the kind of person who says, well, why didn't they just do this? The fact of the matter is they couldn't just do that. So uh, why didn't Paul just tell masters to set servants free? This is a completely naive question based on the assumption that things then were like or similar to what they are like today. You see, The reason why Paul didn't do that is because it wasn't possible. So here's what we have to understand about the first century, about the Greco-Roman world. We have to understand this, and we have to understand this about the Christians. Uh, Christians who were mostly part of the slave population, it's a fact that many, many, many of the earliest Christians were slaves. And what we need to understand is that they could not change the legal system at all because they had no vote. They had no power. There was nothing that they could do. Now, they could have resisted. They could have tried to bring about some sort of a rebellion. But for a slave to rebel against their master would lead to immediate execution. So they would never have gained any ground whatsoever. But not only that, it was actually the the case that um, there were limits upon emancipation. If you had three slaves, uh, and only under certain circumstances, if you were to free them, you could only free two. You couldn't free all of them. If you had 10 slaves, you could only free five of them. If you had 30 slaves, you could only free 10 of them. So this was law. This was part of Roman law. Now, slaves under 30 could not be freed without a legal procedure. And if a slave was freed before the age of 30, then they forfeited any possibility 
of citizenship. So again, to say, well, why didn't the early Christians, why didn't the apostles, why didn't they uh, call for the emancipation, for uh, the abolishment of slavery? Those who are saying that are, are thinking of it from a different context, a current context, and looking back into a situation where that wasn't a possibility. And, and again, it's important for us to understand what slavery was like in the Greco-Roman world as well. So slaves in the Greco-Roman world were employed in agriculture and manufacturing enterprises, construction, mining, governmental positions, education of children, cultural and entertainment activities, as well as many routine household duties. In the Roman Empire, slavery was unrelated to race. It had absolutely nothing to do with race. And that was true during the Old Testament period as well. Um, uh, Hagar was the, the slave of Sarah. Hagar was an Egyptian in the house of Sarah, who became the mother of the Hebrews. But we see later Joseph was a Hebrew or an Israelite, and he was enslaved in Egypt. It, wa- it wasn't at all about race in either the Old Testament period or the New Testament period. It probably began as generals, victorious generals, chose to enslave conquered enemies rather than liquidate them. It was also a form of punishment for crimes or a means of dealing with debtors unable to repay their loans. So that's slavery in the Greco-Roman world. And again, from the Christian standpoint, there's no uh, legal process or means that they can employ to uh, end slavery. And, And of course, remember that the Christian population, as I already said, was made up of majority slaves. And it's not like there was some powerful organization called the church that could negotiate with the the powers that be and all of that. Uh, Of course, that came way, way later on in history. And just to note that in the fourth century and in the seventh century, when Christianity had developed and when the church did have more Uh, cultural and political clout, there were strong uh, abolitionist movements in um, those centuries uh, in particular. So that's the, the ancient world, the Old Testament world, and also the New Testament world. But let's look now at American slavery. And here's the question. And, and again, this is the reason why I'm looking at the topic today is because it's American slavery that is most frequently pointed to as a testimony against the goodness of Christianity. So here's the question. Was American slavery comparable to what we find in Scripture, and was it biblically justifiable? And the answer on both counts is no. It was not comparable to what we find in Scripture, as we'll see in just a second, and it was not biblically justifiable, even though people sought to use the Bible to justify it, and we'll address that in a moment. But let's look at certain aspects of the American slave trade. Uh, The transatlantic slave trade was based on 
man-stealing or kidnapping is the way we would refer today to man-stealing, which according to the Mosaic law was a crime punishable by death. In Exodus 21.16, it says this, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. Paul lists kidnapping as a crime the law was given to punish in his first letter to Timothy in the 10th verse of the first chapter. So uh, the transatlantic slave trade was based on something God considered criminal, which was kidnapping. Uh, secondly, slavery in America was based, was based on race and not only on race, but on a denial that certain people were created in the image of God. Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy, he stated this. He said, the great American evil of slavery wasn't the involuntary servitude it was the fiction that black people aren't as good as white people and aren't the equals of white people and are less evolved, less human, less capable, less worthy, less deserving than white people. And that absolutely was the case with American slavery. It was that there was a sense that there was an inferiority, that the Africans were in some way uh, inferior to white people and were to some degree subhuman. This is a fact. And so nothing in the scripture, as I said, um, ever points to the slavery issue as having anything to do with race or anything like that. And then thirdly, American slavery is often referred to as chattel slavery. And chattel slavery, although it, there was an aspect of chattel slavery in the Greco-Roman system, uh, the American version of chattel slavery took it to a new level. Chattel means property. And in the American system, the slave had no rights whatsoever. Zero rights for the slave. They were 100% at the disposal of their masters. So as we've already seen, this was a contradiction of the law of Moses. Slaves, according to the law of Moses, did have rights. They weren't at the absolute disposal of their masters. Their masters had uh, certain things that they had to abide by. So it's a contradiction of the Mosaic law, but even more, it really is a uh, contradiction of the spirit of the gospel. Yet, some ministers of the gospel then and even now insist that antebellum slavery was consistent with scripture. And there's plenty of historical evidence for this. There are even some um, you know, well-known names in evangelical history, unfortunately, who, who embraced these ideas that there was a scriptural justification for slavery as it was known 
in America. But it, it, it's not that they just did it then. This is still, believe it or not, happening today. Just this past week, I read an article where a Christian theologian is insisting on the grounds of biblical infallibility and the revelatory ministry of the apostles that slavery was consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God help us. I mean, that the fact that there are still people that are trying to insist that this is somehow consistent with the gospel, it, it's just hard to believe in this day and age that that, that is still happening. But it is still happening. I, I want to quote to you from uh, Frederick Douglass. Some of you will know the name Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was uh, the African-American statesman. Uh, he himself was a former slave. And this is what he said about the Christianity of the slave holders of his day. And, and as we listen to what he said, I want you to remember that Frederick Douglass is a Christian himself. So he's speaking as a Christian and listen to what he said. He said, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Wow, that is pretty profound. And that was the perspective of a man who was a slave, uh, who escaped and was ultimately um, purchased out of slavery, uh, a man who went on to be a great voice for abolition, a man who uh, President Lincoln consulted with uh, during the time of the Civil War, but a man who pulled no punches when describing the reality of his experience and the experience of uh, the slaves at the time. So American slavery, far from being consistent with the Bible's teaching on the subject, was actually the great national sin of this country, the sin against Christ and humanity, black African humanity to be exact. So there we have Old Testament slavery, New Testament slavery, and American slavery. So I said earlier that the teaching of Jesus and the apostles actually undermined the, the, the idea of slavery. Somebody put it like this, that the teaching of the New Testament was like a depth charge. And you remember maybe from the movies uh, about the, the Second World War and the um, Marine, uh, submarine warfare and, you know, how the, how the battleships would drop the depth charges uh, trying to um, destroy these U-boats that were, that were sinking so many ships. And the depth charge would go way, way down into the deep and explode there. And then 
all of the um, effects of it would be seen, like the aftershocks of it. And that is what has been said about uh, what the gospel has done. So to just summarize it, the teaching of Moses regulated slavery in Israel and humanized it. The teaching of Jesus and the apostles undermined slavery and set in motion its demise. How did the teaching of Jesus and the apostles do that? Well, um, Dr. Peter J. Williams of Cambridge University gave a tremendous lecture on this topic. And um, I I just want to take the points that he laid out and reiterate them. So he says, first of all, that um, the first thing was the teaching about loving others as Christ loved us. So when when the gospel went forth and the message of the gospel that we are to love one another, that was in and of itself a sufficient message to blow up the foundation of slavery. And here's an interesting and a very tragic um, bit of uh, information about what was happening during uh, the time of slavery in this country. Believe it or not, certain Christians understood the ramifications of the gospel um, in regard to slavery. They understood that if a slave became a Christian, they would be obligated to release that person because as a Christian, you could not hold your brother uh, or sister in a state like that and require that kind of thing from them. They, They understood that. And some... Even with that knowledge, they discouraged evangelism among the Africans. Because if these people come to faith, then we're going to lose them as slaves. So they insisted that they they shouldn't hear the gospel because they didn't want to be put out of um, of their workers in case they came to Christ. So they, they understood the ramifications of, of love one another as Christ loved us, that it in and of itself would bring uh, the end of the, the slave situation. So that's the first point. The second point that uh, he makes is that of brotherhood. You see, in the ancient world, like in certain parts of our world, uh, society was so stratified, it was so divided and, and segregated that your brother was literally only your uh, kin. Those were the only people that you would consider um, in that sort of a way. But when the gospel comes along and brings us all into the family of God under our heavenly father, and we all become brothers and sisters This creates an environment, once again, where how do you oppress your brother or your sister? That's just not done. So think of it as a a congregational gathering in the first century, and there you have uh, people who are uh, slaves, you have people who are masters, but the overall message is that we are all brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters are seen as uh, equal before the, the parent, right? 
So it was the teaching about uh, this familial thing that God was doing in bringing together a new family. This was also an undermining factor. And then he brought out something that I never thought of before. And it's, it's pretty fascinating. He brought out just the idea that we have in scripture of greeting one another with a holy kiss. Now, I think oftentimes in our day, we look at that and that's not our custom. So, uh, you know, sometimes we might joke a little about it or something like that. But, but uh, Dr. Williams, he, he said this was very intentional. And again, this was a breaking down of the natural divisions that had developed in a society. Because the last thing you would do was cross a social barrier to give someone a kiss. This was unheard of. This is like, um, like the, in the military, this would be like the, the upper um, ranks uh, fraternizing with the, the, with the privates and the corporals. It, that doesn't happen. They're, they're kept separate. But the holy kiss would actually cross again those barriers and it would be through the holy kiss that the message of equality would be being spread. And of course, Paul's teaching and the teaching here in Colossians that we looked at, bond servants obey your masters in all things. Masters give your bond servants what is just and fair. Um, the apostles taught a, an equality among masters and servants, they understood clearly that they had an equal standing before God. And this again would um, prevent them from ultimately holding on to their slaves. And then over the whole thing, Jesus was Lord. Jesus was Lord over the people of God. Now, Jesus is Lord. The word Lord is the Greek word kurios. And that word also easily could be translated master. So when the congregations would gather, they knew that they were gathering to worship and to serve the master. So, so if you're a master, you know clearly that I have a master. And my master is also the master of the slave next to me. So this is just uh, the whole dynamic is being changed. And Peter Williams goes on and he concludes with this. He says, the apostles and the early Christians can't abolish slavery. They are not in a political position to do that. But what they can do is start a new society, a new ethnic group. They started a new society where everyone is free from sin and slaves of the best master there could possibly be, Jesus Christ. You see, we forget this, but the church is a distinct people group as far as God is concerned. There's Jews, according to the scripture, there's Jews, that's a, that's a people group. There's Gentiles, that's the larger nations. And then there's the church. The church is a, is a distinct group and it's within this new society 
this new ethne, as the Greek would have it, this new ethnic group that emerges out of faith in Christ, that there is to be Christ as the master and love um, between all of us as brothers and sisters. This would be the death knell to slavery. And, and let me just remind our skeptical friends that it wasn't the atheist or the agnostics who uh, abolished slavery. It was the Christians. The Christians were the ones who led the charge. The Christians were the ones who persevered through all of the difficulties and challenges and harassments and all of these things. Read the story of William Wilberforce. Uh, he spent much of his adult life, if not all of his adult life, uh, battling in parliament to end um, the slave trade. And he succeeded and died shortly after um, he finished that fight. And so that was true in um, Britain. And that was true in the United States as well. Uh, you think of a woman like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote the, the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And of course, this book would be the book that would um, shed light on just simply on the humanity of the Africans and garner the sympathy of many people then would actually lead to the Civil War. And um, Abraham Lincoln acknowledged this small woman as the small woman who started this big war. And so it was through Christians that slavery was abolished. So here is my final point, and I want to make it in the form of a question. Uh, is the gospel good? Because that's what we're talking about, and that's what's being challenged, and that's what we're hearing in the culture by so many today. And Sam Harris is just one voice. We could have uh, found many others echoing the same thing. Is the gospel good? Well, here's what I think is the greatest testimony to the goodness of the gospel, to the reality of the gospel, to the goodness of Christ, despite all that we've talked about and all of the, the negativity and the misrepresentation that has come down through the ages from Christians, sometimes from church leaders, I think the greatest testimony to the gospel being good is the African-American testimony. The African-American testimony bears witness because here's the irony in it all. The irony in it all, like we saw with uh, Frederick Douglass, they rejected the hypocritical Christianity of the slaveholders, but they saw beyond it and they could see that Jesus Christ was not anything like was being represented by the slaveholders. They, they could see through it. And Jesus became the hope of these people. The African church was birthed out of, the black church that exists today was birthed out of faith in Christ despite the ill and brutal treatment of people even in the name of Christ. That is the most amazing thing about it. Uh, Frederick Douglass said this, I'll quote him again. He said, in Jesus Christ, I finally found my burden lightened and my heart relieved. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery more than ever. I saw the world in a new light and my great concern was to have everybody converted. So despite what he saw, 
he met Christ and he knew that Christ was true and he knew that Christ was the Savior and he embraced him as the Savior. Josiah Henson, Josiah Henson is the man that um, Harriet Beecher Stowe uh, had in her mind when she was writing the story, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, he was the slave that she had in mind. And here's what he said about Jesus. He said, oh, the blessed and sweetness of feeling that I was loved. I would have died that moment with joy and kept repeating to myself the compassionate Savior about whom I have heard loves me. So that's the, that's the reality. And the testimony of the, uh, the black church, the testimony of the multitudes of slaves who found refuge in Jesus despite the abuse of their so-called Christian masters. Uh, this is a powerful evidence to me that the gospel is everything it claims to be, that it is good, that the Bible's teaching is good. You see, Frederick Douglass read the Bible. He saw the Jesus of the Bible, and he understood that what he was seeing was not a representative of the Jesus of the Bible. And so today when we hear things like uh, what Sam Harris and others are saying, let's make sure that we don't just take uh, what they've said and conclude that that's the final word on it. Go straight to the text itself. And, and as we've done today, I know it's been a, a bit of a, lecture more than a, a, a sermon. Uh, but, you know, we've walked through and answered the objections. We've shown that Old Testament slavery uh, was different than uh, what we commonly think about as slavery. We've seen that it, it wasn't the ideal situation. It was never intended to be. It was intended to regulate for a period of time. And we see that the New Testament, the teaching on the relationship between slaves and masters was necessary because of the cultural context. It couldn't be otherwise at the time, but as we've seen, the very gospel itself and the love of Christ and the fellowship that he brings to us as brothers and sisters, that was the, the dynamite that would strike at the foundation of slavery and ultimately destroy it. And so as we close today, I just want to encourage you in, in a world that is, that is uh, opposing the gospel, in a world that's blaspheming Jesus Christ, in a world that's saying God is not good and the Bible's not good and Christianity's not good and the gospel is not good, know this. The Africans, they think that he is good. The African-Americans, the black church, they disprove the rhetoric of these skeptics. And so, Lord, thank you that we have your word, that we can go to it, that we can dig into it, that we can understand it and see how um, these slanderous things that are about in the culture, we can see how these things are refuted by just a clear understanding of the, the biblical text and the realities of the ancient world, and the reality of what the gospel does. 
And Lord, thank you for the testimony of Frederick Douglass. I know him and Josiah Henson have long passed off the scene, but Lord, their words are powerful and many others like them. And Lord, many today, we just think of the many great African-American Christians today uh, who despite, even in their own lifetimes, having been mistreated and, and uh, dealt with as second-class citizens and things like that, Lord, that they've looked beyond that and they've embraced you and loved you and what a witness that is to us. And Lord, help us. Help us to remember that ultimately we are all the bond slaves of Jesus, the great master. And we happily and gladly submit to his authority and we thank you, Lord, that one day, just as you uh, destroyed the institution of slavery through the gospel, and we know that there's still slavery going on in the world, but Lord, we know that one day you'll obliterate all of this and you'll set up that glorious, righteous kingdom wherein righteousness and justice dwell. And so, Lord, we go forward with that confidence, thanking you and praising you. Amen.